Well, howdy, everybody. Good to see y'all. You can tell I'm from Arkansas by my accent, I know. When I talk to people from California or somewhere on the, the phone for tech support, or, you know, they have a hard time understanding me as I do them. But as Mike and Angie and several people we've seen here briefly when we got here a while ago that we haven't seen in such a long time, Becky, Cindy, reporters, so many people we've seen, Marlowe's, hi, <laughs> Ian, Huffton, hi. So many people we haven't seen in so long. It's good to see you guys. I want to apologize to Brian. I did not get him the scriptures like I had intended to, so that they're not up there. So we'll just have to wing it. Those of you who have heard me speak know that I usually try to start out with a humorous story. At least I usually think it's humorous. Hopefully y'all will too. There was a homeless man who had not eaten in several days. He came to a restaurant and he hoped that they would extend him mercy and at least give him a little something to eat. He looked at the name of the place on the sign above the door and it struck him a little odd. It was called Georgian the Dragon. He thought, well, that's kind of an odd name for a restaurant. He went ahead and knocked on the door anyway, and there was a woman, very stern looking, opened the door and said, what do you want? So he told her the story that he hadn't had anything to eat in several days, and he was wondering if she could give him something to eat. So she started yelling at him and cussing him and telling him that it was his own fault that he didn't have a place to live or anything to eat, and people always want something free and just really berated him there. Just kept on for a long time, and then finally she just slammed the door right in his face. Well, he felt kind of dejected. But he looked back up at the sign again, said, George and the dragon. He knocked on the door again. When the lady opened the door again, he said, now can I speak with George? <laughs> you know, we've probably all been berated by people at some point. Perhaps we may have berated others. Hopefully that's not the case. And when you're in close quarters like we are for the feast, you know, you're not in your normal size house. You're usually in a smaller room. You know, sometimes it's easy to get on each other's nerves when you're at the feast with your friends and family. Sometimes it's easy to say things we shouldn't say or that we regret later. We're all human. It's easy to snap at each other from time to time. But brethren, we still need to realize that when we snap at someone, it's usually out of selfishness or impatience. A lot of reasons that we could do it. But we know we're here to serve God and his people. And I tell people all the time, if you're not serving God's people, you're not actually serving God. We are not here to serve ourselves. Selfishness should have no place among us. So that's what I'd like to talk about today, as you see on the screen, since I didn't have the scriptures for him. I'd like to talk about edification and how we should apply it in our Christian lives, because it's easy to talk about it. We all know that we shouldn't snap at one another. We all know that we should think about what the other person is going to feel when we say it. It's easy to understand those things, but how we apply it is what really matters. For those of you who have 
done any kind of study into the Greek word in the New Testament for edification. And I'm from Arkansas. It's all Greek to me. But the word is somewhat like oikodome. It's number 3619 in Strong's. And those of us who've been around the church a long time, and I've been in since I was 10, so that's 33 years now. By the way, this is my wife's 40th feast. She's been there all her life. But those of you who've been around a while, we know that edify means to build up, which the song that Mike just did certainly was uplifting. We appreciate that. It does help build us up. We know that's what edify means, but it actually means a lot more than that. When you look up the word in the dictionary, Merriam-Webster's is what I use, it said the word edify means to build up. Also, to strengthen, to instruct, to improve spiritually, or to enlighten. Now, the Bible talks a lot about edifying. We can't go through all the scriptures because we have activities for the next several days. But we know that we're told in the scriptures to examine ourselves, and we also know that's not just for Passover, right? We should examine ourselves every day. When we examine ourselves honestly on this point, what do we conclude? Can we honestly say that one of our goals each day is to help build up the people that we encounter that day, whether in the church or out? Does it matter? What do our fruits show? Do we, as a general rule, build people up, or do we tear them down? Now, we've all known people that love to tear you down. We've all encountered people like that. Have you ever known someone who took every opportunity to tear people down? Well, I have. And that's not the kind of person you find that you want to hang around, is it? You want to be around people that make you feel better, that can help you. And I'm not just talking about speaking smooth words, but I mean people that you feel good to be around, that you feel better when you leave them than you did before you started talking to them. Where do you think the attitude comes from to be negative or to tear people down every time you see them? Does it come from God? Of course not. Even when we read about the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, first thing he does is tell them what they're doing right, if anything. And then he tells them what they need to work on. When we build up, we are showing the characteristics of God. Let's go to Galatians 5. And I know you all recognize that this is about the fruits of the Spirit. But it starts out talking about the works of the flesh. Let's read these quickly to make a point. Galatians 5, I'll read 19 through 26. This is now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And it goes through a list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. Quite a list, doesn't it? Envyings, murders, did a good job, Brian. Drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now think about these things for a moment in that list. 
Do any of these things build people up? No. They tear people down, don't they? They tear down relationships, be it married, marital, family, friend. All these things tear down. They don't build up. Now let's look at the fruits of God's way. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. These things all build up. It says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It doesn't do us any good to say we believe these things unless we live them, unless we live them does it? Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. When we contrast the two, the works of the flesh against the fruits of the Spirit, there's a vast difference, isn't there? God's way is a way of lifting up or building up. Well, we all know God is a creator or builder. But on the other side of the coin, we know in Revelation 9:11, Satan is called Abaddon or Apollyon, which in Hebrew and Greek respectively, they mean destroyer. God is a creator, a builder. Satan is a destroyer. He tears down. Now, which again do we want to be like? If we want to build godly character, we need to edify, don't we? Don't we want to walk as Christ walked? Didn't he build people up? Now, sure, he used some of the other words that define the word edify. When you think about your own approach to people, what would you say about yourself? Would you say you're typically a positive person, or would you say you're a negative person? Maybe even more importantly, what would other people say about you? Because we see ourselves differently than most people, don't we? We tend to look at the good parts of our character, the good aspects of us, and we don't always examine ourselves as other people would. So how do you think other people see you? You may ask them sometime. What would be wrong with that? Or you may be married and you don't have to ask. Your husband or wife may just tell you. It happens to me. <laughs> you know, it helps me. Like, like Dave was saying, you know, she kind of keeps me in line. They're my, my domestic boss, as he put it. That's true. Do the things you say hurt people, or do they help people? Do you think before you speak? I'd like to go to Proverbs 25 and verse 11. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. It says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. I believe the New King James says settings of silver. Doesn't that just paint a picture in your mind of what your words should say? How your words should paint a picture that the other person can take and build on. Your words can provide a beautiful setting for the day if you choose to. Now, I used to have a friend, and he would say, the tongue is in a wet place, it's bound to slip once in a while. And that's true. But that doesn't mean we don't need to be on guard. 
We all have things that we need to work on, I know. All of us are in that boat. But we have all of the conversation here at the feast, either here at church or the activities, will they be to build the other person up? Or are we a little too self-absorbed sometimes in the afternoons trying to get to the things that we want to do? We always need to look at it from the other person's perspective, from their point of view. Is that what's on your mind before you speak? Do you think before you speak? Now, I'm not talking about filling somebody up with hot air. You know, I've known people that would fill you up with such a load of bull, they'd give them a hankering for a, a bale of hay. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about genuine concern. A genuine thought of, how is this going to affect the other person? Because it's easy to just blurt something out that you wish later you hadn't said. We all know we've been in that boat. I'm talking about a genuine concern for others. I'll refer, or I'll start going to 1 Corinthians 14. So give Brian a little second to get that up there. I'll read 1 through 6, and then verses 12 and then 26. I know I'm putting you to work, Brian. I'm sorry, man. We find in the New Testament that Paul was always concerned about this very thing in the churches that he spoke to and he wrote letters to. He was very concerned with how they dealt with one another, the things that they said, their approach to showing love to one another. People haven't changed much over the thousands of years. We still have the same pulls, same influences. We still run out of time. We're impatient. Not much has changed. There was a lot of selfishness going on in Paul's day, too. It's no different in that aspect from the time we live in. The Corinthian church had a lot to work on. They really did. We need to learn from their mistakes. You know, we don't have to make the same mistakes that they did. We can learn from others' mistakes. 1 Corinthians 14, I'll read 1 through 6. So speaking of gifts here, which the main two spoken of, prophecy and tongues. He says, follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Why do you think Paul would say that? Well, let's go on. For he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. For no man understands him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. You know, prophecy is really about giving people the hope of the kingdom of God. That's one of the reasons we're here. It's not just for us. This festival isn't just for us. It's for the people we come in contact with, too. You know, think about the person that you're talking to. It may be that you are the only preview of the kingdom they get. Now, that's a responsibility, isn't it? You may be the only preview of God's kingdom that they get before it gets here. When we talk about edification, exhortation, and comfort, we've just read what the goal should be of every minister that gets up and speaks, every person that talks to another brother while they're at the feast, or even back home. Every day. We all should edify, exhort, and comfort one another. 
Isn't there enough negativity in the world without us letting it permeate our lives? We're the ones that are supposed to be delving into the truth, trying to live the truth. We should be an example of that light in the world. Not too many people are. God's people need to make sure that their light does shine. Paul has given us an outline for the Christian conversation everywhere we go, with every person that we speak to, in or out of church. We should edify, exhort, and comfort. And at times it does not mean that you have to say everything nice. Sometimes you have to get discipline across or correction, depending on different situations for children, ministers, all kinds of things going on. But it depends on how you say it. Every time we speak, edifying, exhorting, and comforting should be our goal. Verse 4. He that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. I would that you all speak with tongues, but rather that you prophesy. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. If you're speaking in a foreign language and I don't understand you, how does that help me? It doesn't. But prophesying should. You are there to give people hope about what's coming. The outline that God has given us in the scriptures. You are there to help that person to see what they have to look forward to, depending on which decisions they make. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine. I'll drop down to verse 12. Even so you, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, which we all should be, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. That's the only reason you'd want to do it. You're not trying to, to make yourself somebody you're not. You know, like Carl McNair told me one time that he had met five of the two witnesses. You know, everybody wants to be somebody. Everybody wants to tell you their version of prophecy. We are here to give people hope. We are here to give them something to hold on to. Life is depressing enough. We are to be a light to this world. And God's word is the light that we're supposed to shine. Are we an example or a preview of God's kingdom everywhere we go. Now I'll drop down to verse 26 here. He says, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? He says, Let all things be done unto edifying. That is your reason, your purpose, for doing whatever it is you do in the church. At least it should be. That should be our goal. No matter what we say or do, it should be for edification, for God's people, and for God's kingdom. Paul was very concerned with this. We find it in book after book or letter after letter that he wrote. And we're, when we're reading these letters in the scriptures, we're basically reading someone else's mail and trying to understand it. But he was very concerned with this about the groups. How much do we think about this before we speak? Would he write us a different letter? 
would he be able to put different things in it? Are our actions motivated by selfishness? Or do our actions show concern for others before ourselves? I'd like to go to Philippians 2. I'll read 1 through 9 here. Philippians 2, 1 through 9. Do you want the mind of God? Well, you have to know what it looks like, don't you? We have to go to the scripture to see what the mind of God is. Philippians 2, 1 through 9. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy, what was that joy? That you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. He says, nothing. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Human nature is tough. It does not come naturally for us to esteem others better than ourselves. But that's what the Spirit of God is for. We have to stir it up. We have to use it. Or it can go dormant. That's the reason, he says, to stir it up. Look not every man on his own things, also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you. And when it says that, scratch out you and put your name there. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, he didn't go out there trying to build himself up or give himself a name. He actually went in the other direction. Stay away from it. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now, had we rather be content with the name we give ourselves when we build ourselves up, or had we rather God do it for us? Jesus could have never, of his own self, built his name up like God did for him. When you think of the other person before yourself, you are thinking just like Jesus Christ. That means you are having the mind of Christ. That's what we're admonished to do. Paul speaks a lot about edification. As I said, I can't go through all the scriptures, but I'll go through a few. Acts 9. I'll read verses 26 through 31. Acts 9, 26 through 31. Now this is after Paul's conversion, just shortly after. Now we know what he had been doing up until this point, till he was converted, till he was blinded. He was persecuting the church. He was taking them to where they could be killed even. And so you can see why the people felt the way that we'll read here. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. Of course, Saul is Paul. But they were all afraid of him, <laughs> and for good reason. And believed not that he was a disciple. You know, they thought he was trying to 
sneak his way in, infiltrate the camp. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him. They weren't the only ones. Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. The churches here had rest. They were edified. They walked with God. They were comforted. And they multiplied. There was a lot going on in verse 31 here. We want the same thing going on in our churches, don't we? In our buildings, in our groups. Don't you want to have rest? Don't you want to have comfort? Don't you want God to be on your side? We have to do the same thing that Christ did. You know, I don't believe enough of us speak boldly in the name of Christ with the goal of edifying or building up. And I, I realize it's hard. It's hard to bypass the cares of the world. You know, people today are in a constant state of getting things for themselves, but what are we instructed to go after? Romans 14 and verse 19. Romans 14, 19. says, let us therefore follow after the things. That word for follow after means to pursue. Follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. This should be one of our goals every day when we get up in the morning. When we say our morning prayer, we should ask God to help us to be a light that day. To be a good example. To edify the people that we come into contact with. Because like I said, you may be the only preview of God's kingdom that they get. We are here to edify each other, not build ourselves up. Have you ever known anyone that was constantly trying to show how much they knew? I'm sure you have. Is that, again, someone that you wanted to be around all the time? No. We know in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, it says that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs yourself up. You want to talk about how much you know, how great you are. However, love edifies. It builds the other person up. It is an outgoing concern. Selfishness is incoming. Love is outgoing. Go to Romans 15. I'd like to look at verses 1 through 4. Romans 15, 1 through 4. Let's see further proof. It says, We then that are strong. Now, how many in a church do we believe are very strong? Well, we have good days and bad days, don't we? But when you are feeling strong, it says here that you ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. The days that you're weak, Hopefully some of the other people are strong and they'll help bear yours. That's what God is all about, working together to get the job done.
to get through this life, to build. He goes on to say, and not to please ourselves, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached you fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that's what the Bible is for, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now it's easy sometimes to dwell on all the bad stuff that's coming in the scriptures. But we should also make sure and give people hope. Look at the scriptures that comfort, as it says here. You know, the Bible is a complete picture. We have to make sure that we give the complete picture, at least to the best of our abilities. Do we really do things that please others? Here at the feast, are we putting the needs of others before our needs? I know we all want to do certain things. We have schedules, things we'd like to do. But what if something comes up and someone needs you? Are you willing to cancel something to go help that person? How far are you willing to go to help your brother? I'd like to go to 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll read 8 through 11 here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. He says, But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're resurrected when he returns or whether we're still alive, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. So he's, we see here the Thessalonians were doing a better job of edifying than the Corinthians. Have we noticed that there's a running theme in the scriptures that we've been reading that mention edification, encouragement, comforting. These things are very important. Let's think about a moment here, the conversations that we have with each other at the feast. And I know when we're here, it's easy, or it's easier to do it. But what about when we're with our families? The familiarity, <laughs> the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. It's easy sometimes to snap at your husband or wife when you've been married several years. But that's not what we're supposed to do. Do we think of the other person before we speak to see if our comments would build up, would strengthen them, would instruct them, would improve them spiritually, or would even enlighten the other person? Now, I'm sure all of you are familiar with Winston Churchill. There's a well-known story of Mr. Churchill being very drunk at a party one time. I mean, he was tore up from the floor up. He was drunk. And the hostess, her name was Bessie Braddock. She was very enraged. It was her party. And she came to him and she said, Well, Mr. Churchill, you are drunk. And he replied, Yes, Bessie, and you are ugly. But in the morning I shall be sorry. Now that wasn't very nice, was it? Can you imagine in front of all those people how he made her feel? Yeah, he would be sober in the morning. But he implied that she would still be ugly. Poor woman. 
You know, I've heard that he later regretted those comments tremendously. But, you know, he couldn't take them back. As a minister, we used to have said, a bell rung cannot be unrung. Once you say something, it's there. And don't put it on the Internet. It's always there. <laughs> Delete button will not fix that mistake. Well, what should our conversations be like? Let's go to Ephesians 4, verse 29. Ephesians 4, verse 29. He says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. You know, we should let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouths. That's a big job. Because when you're under stress, no matter what kind it is, it's hard sometimes to control yourself. We've all said things that we shouldn't have said and regretted it later. I'll be married 18 years in December. I've done it many times. Said things that I shouldn't have said. Cutting out. But she told me, reminded me, hey, you're not supposed to say that. Oops. Sometimes you just have to back up and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I'll work on it. And it gets better. At least it has so far. The first year we were married was great. Second and third year, we about killed each other. If it hadn't been for the church and us, you know, trying to work on things to do what was right, because we, we weren't baptized yet back then, but we were headed in that direction. Had it been for that, we would have killed each other, no doubt about it. Because those of you who know us know that you know, we're, we're fairly hard-headed, mean. You know, my mom and dad, they taught me and my brother to cook when we were growing up, because they said, we were too mean to find a wife. <laughs> but I fooled them, and I, I always say this, because I found a wife as mean as me. <laughs> so we worked together well. And we worked together every day, seven days a week. You know, we go to church on the Sabbath together. We worked the other six days a week together. We're together all the time. You have to work a lot to have a relationship when you're around that much, around each other that much. It's work, but it's worth it. Now, we should think about what we are about to say before we say it, to see if it is going to be beneficial to the other person. And most of the time, you know, our brains don't work that way. Our mouth is way ahead of our brains in some cases. Y'all know, don't you? We've all been there. We need to dial our mouths back a little bit, hopefully dial our brains up. I'd like to refer to Proverbs 29, 11. Because you know there are a lot of people who are proud that they speak their mind no matter what. It's good to be honest and forthright. But it's not always good to speak the first thing that pops into your mind. I know. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keeps it in till afterwards. Afterwards what? After he's thought about it. 
if you are one of those people, you just blurt out whatever comes to mind, it's not me. I'm just reading it. Proverbs called you a fool. I have played that fool. It wasn't pretty. We all need to learn from our mistake. God says if you say just whatever comes to your mind that you are a fool. Again, you should be honest and forthright, but always for edification. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. I'll read 21 through 23 here. You know, just because something is lawful doesn't mean that's what's going to be good for the other person for you to do it. We have the example in the scripture of Paul eating meat. Nothing wrong with eating meat. After the flood, God told people that they could. But what if it offends a new brother? I love steak. You can tell by looking at me. I love it. But if it is going to offend someone, cause them to stumble, I better dial it back. Have a salad. You can live on it. 1 Corinthians 10, 21 through 23. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You know, we like to have both sides, don't we? Like to have our cake and eat it too. Well, it doesn't work that way. Israelites tried to do the same thing. Worship God. Worship the other idols from the other nations. Doesn't work. God doesn't accept it. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Just because you are allowed by law to do or say something doesn't mean at that moment that's what's going to be to edify the other person. The law is summed up by love. We know that. God made the laws for our good. But you hear people get into things because they think, well, it's in the scriptures. We could just talk about anything. And they'll argue about the silliest things. I have heard people argue over who the two witnesses are. That's just silly. I've seen people argue at church over things that don't make a hill of beans for anything. Like Rod Meredith, I heard him in a sermon years ago, and he was talking about coffee pot wars in one of the churches. One woman brought a coffee pot to serve the brethren. The other woman didn't know about it. She also brought a coffee pot. And so they were both brewing coffee and wanted the other people to drink theirs, not the other person. She went up there and unplugged the other woman's and put it up in the name of serving the brethren. Yeah, we can see that silly, can't we? For some reason, she couldn't. It's, you know, you want to say it's funny what people do, but sometimes it's not that funny. 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 4. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, as I besought you to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. Now, people want to talk about their own little pet doctrines and all these little things they want to get into. But is that what the other person needs? Well, probably not. 
lest they ask about it. There's certainly nothing wrong with reasoning together. We know scripture says iron sharpens iron. Anybody that's ever done that knows there's a certain amount of friction involved. You can't sharpen anything without friction. Doesn't mean it has to get out of hand or be mean or ugly. We should be able to reason together, but it should always be for the purpose of edifying, building up the other person, strengthening them, helping them to improve spiritually. You know, are we listening when we're talking to someone, having a conversation, or can do we block them out and can't wait to get our point across? Sometimes that happens. We need to listen to see what they need. God wants unity, but he wants godly unity. He wants us to build others up to help them to achieve the same thing we want to, which is the kingdom of God. Second Corinthians 10, verses 7 and 8 here. Second Corinthians 10, 7 and 8. You know, some people love to abuse whatever authority they think they have. 2 Corinthians 10, 7 and 8. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that he is Christ, even so are we Christ. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord has given us, for what? For beating the other person over the head, keeping them in line? No. For edification and not for your destruction I should not be ashamed did we read that right is that what authority is for yes it is it's for their edification I'll refer to 2nd Corinthians 13 10 he says the same thing therefore I write these things being absent let's being present I should use sharpness and there is time there are times when you have to use sharpness anybody who has kids knows Sometimes you speak sharp words to your children. But it's always for their edification, isn't it? Same thing in the church. He says, unless being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord has given me to edification and not to destruction. Paul said that he was, if he was there, he would use sharpness, but he would still edify. Like I said, I'm not just talking about always speaking smooth words. But if you are in a position of authority, it should always be for edification. Absolutely must always be for the other person's benefit. You know, God inspired the reason why we should do all of the things we do. He inspired it to be written in 2 Corinthians 12, 19. If you notice, several of these are in Corinthians. And there's even more. You can read it when you get a chance. Next time you're studying Corinthians, you'll see. 2 Corinthians 12, 19. He says, again, thank you that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. And Paul, he, he did speak plainly and sharply at times, didn't he, in some of the letters that he wrote. It was always, though, for their edification. He always wanted to help those people to be improved spiritually so they would have a better opportunity at being in the kingdom of God. Now, we don't always speak smooth words. You know, if you 
or any of that, you can, I guess, go get into politics more. Because, you know, that's what it's all about, telling you what you want to hear. I have a, a friend, he told me a very good definition of politics one time. He said, you can just break it down. The word poly means many, and we know what ticks are. <laughs> so in his estimation, anyway, politicians were a bunch of bloodsuckers. Maybe something to say for that, for most of them. But you know, God gives us a lot of different jobs in the church. He gives us different responsibilities, different things we can do, and none are better than the other. He gives us different jobs, different responsibilities based on our talents, our gifts, our abilities. I'd like to go to Ephesians 4. I'll read 11 through 16 here. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. You know, I've heard this in the church. People use these to so-called put people in their place. That's not why they're there. It's just a difference of responsibility based on the gifts and talents that God has given you. Ephesians 4, 11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the what perfecting of the saints that's why they're there they're not there to have a title or to be somebody for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and are we there yet no we got work to do we're getting there hopefully and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. That should be our goal. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But this is what we're supposed to do. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is ahead even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, did we notice at the end of verse 16 while we have these jobs? It's not to lord it over one another, but instead to cause growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I know some people are harder to please than others. There's a story I heard several years ago. A man and his wife, they'd been married several years, and he was always telling her she just couldn't do anything right. She'd make him breakfast in the morning. He always wanted two eggs. If she scrambled them, he wanted them poached. If she poached them, he wanted them scrambled. So she had a stroke of genius one night, she thought, in the morning, I'll scramble one and I'll poach the other one. So she got up in the morning, did just that. He was sitting at the table waiting for him, impatiently as always. She set him down before him, and he looked at her, and he said, Woman, can't you do anything right? You scrambled the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people are just hard to please. But that shouldn't be us as God's people. We are here to serve God and to serve his people. We are here to build each other up, to help one another into the kingdom of God. So in conclusion, God is a builder. Satan is a destroyer. 
Which are we? More importantly, what will we become from here on out? It doesn't matter where we've been. We can change that right here at this moment. Let's try to steer away from making comments like Winston Churchill did. We need to examine ourselves to see where we're at on this issue. I ask you to make one of your goals each day here at the feast to, be, to help build the people up that you come into contact with here or at your health committees. We need to work diligently to help each other build our spiritual Christian temples. We can either build up ourselves or each other. God is calling a work party to build his church. What are you building? 